I want to invite you uh, to take your Bibles. Taking a break from uh, Genesis to focus on, I don't know, the resurrection of Jesus. How about that, huh? The greatest thing that we can talk about. In fact, every time we gather, every single Sunday morning we gather, we're gathering because Jesus has been raised. It would be pointless to be here if he was still in the tomb. We'd be fools, the scripture says, if he was still in the tomb. All right, let's look at Romans chapter 6. I looked back in my records. Uh, I think the last time I preached this text was in 2007. So it bears revisiting. Romans chapter 6, uh, the church Bible, you're going to find that on, beginning in 942 if you choose to use that Bible. And I realize it's in the middle of a, a thought, but this is the section that I want to tackle this morning. Romans chapter 6, verses 5 through 11. Let's give our attention to God's word as it is read. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Would you join me as we ask for uh, the Lord's help? We need it during this time. Father, would you open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word? And Lord, we know that as you open our eyes and open our hearts, the true work in us is done. Not by a man speaking, but by your Holy Spirit planting. So, Father, in this time of giving focus to your word, these words, would you, by your Spirit, spiritually awaken the dead? Would you give comfort to those among us who are afflicted and would you afflict those among us who have been comfortable in all of this so that we who hear may be vessels bringing glory to Jesus and we pray all of this in his name amen of course, this day, many in the community around us are celebrating with, uh, with perhaps brunch, chocolate eggs, and bunnies. And, and, and for some of them, admittedly, this day represents a kind of a renewal. The deadness and dormancy of winter gives way to spring. You know, there's new growth. We see daffodils and uh, tulips pushing through. And I looked at the tree in my front yard. The, the buds are appearing. I know those ideas are not completely wrong. People are desperate to enjoy the essence of a reality 
however, without the substance of what this day truly means in Christ. So here we are in this place. We're here every Sunday, as I already said. And it's because of the central fact of our faith that 2,000 years ago, the eternal Son of God became a man. He was crucified in a Roman cross. And on the third day, the first day of the week, a Sunday, Jesus emerged from that tomb and he showed himself alive. And for all of us who have faith in Christ, death gives way to life for us. And all of this because on Friday, Jesus was dead. On Sunday, he was alive again. Now, there's always the danger of sentimentalizing this resurrection of Jesus. It was a glorious thing that, that the women went to the tomb and, and found it empty. That the angels said, he is not here. He is risen. Or in one account where they say, why are you seeking the living among the dead? It's a glorious thing that their, their friend and mentor and master who they had seen crucified was alive again. And we don't want to be in danger of just stopping there with the joy of having him back. We want to go deeper. Because while the world may acknowledge at some level that we celebrate this day because our, our Lord and King has risen, what this means to each of us is vitally important. That's what I want to grapple with today. What does this mean to us? And what it means is that if you have been united with Christ by faith, you and I are to consider ourselves both dead and alive forever and for now. We are to consider ourselves both dead and alive. Now let's, let's jump into our Bible text. First of all, you are dead to sin. You are dead to sin. Now it shouldn't happen this way in human relationships, but there have been times when a relationship becomes so very strained, the re relational separation so seemingly permanent that a, a father or mother or friend or wife might say, He's dead to me. He's dead to me. Now, in that circumstance, when somebody said, he's dead to me, the, the causes for that breakdown could be legion. But it's some event, some, some utterly life-changing circumstance that came between the two. Now, I want to say this. What should never, ever happen in our human relationships should and does happen in our relationship with sin. So what am I talking about this relationship with sin? Well, the Bible says that we are born in a state of sin. Uh, David, in Psalm 51.5, that great confession psalm, he says this, I was brought forth in iniquity. In sin did my mother conceive me. Now, I get this idea is an offense to most people in the world. You're telling me the little baby is not innocent? That is right. A little baby is not innocent. Now, we can blame our first parents for this sin nature. 
But absolutely none of us can make the claim to absolute innocence. That sin is what we have done and continue to do. Sin informs every decision we make because in our natural state, it rules us. This is something that in this chapter, that part of this chapter we read together, the Apostle Paul develops more later. But I want just to let Jesus' words about this suffice for now. John 8, 34, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Those who practice sin. That is to say, those that are committed to sinning, they are enslaved to it. It's a, it's a relationship, a master-slave relationship. Sin is the master, we are the slaves. But then, then Christ comes. He himself comes and dies. That is, through Jesus' death, he breaks the master-slave relationship that sin has. That's the life-changing event that gets in the way of the once slave and the former master. Jesus' death comes and breaks the relationship. So the looking at verse 5 in the text we read together, the Apostle Paul, Paul tells us how this happens. We have been united with him in a death like his. That is to say, united in Christ, united to Christ by faith. And this benefit, the benefit of Jesus' death to us was that it was vicarious. It's a, a word that theologians like to use, but it was for us, on our behalf. That is to say, in the place of those who would believe on him. And then verse 6 in our text that we read together describes how this happens. Keeping the, the crucifixion of Jesus in mind. Our old self was crucified with him. Our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. So our old self, that one that had that master-slave relationship with sin, that old self was then crucified with Christ at his cross. Now where he says, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, I take that that body of sin is the record of it. Let me just pause here for a moment. Have you ever thought what the record of your sin would look like? I thought about this. If it was played back in a movie, that would be a horror, an absolute horror to behold that, wouldn't it? Well, because our old self was crucified with Christ, the body of sin, the totality of it is brought to Nothing. It is rendered idle. It is inactivated. It is deprived of force or influence. It is abolished. It is annulled. Ponder that. Ponder that. That whole record. Gone. And what's the effect? Verse 7. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Enslaved to sin is the default human position when we're born. We're born into this master-slave relationship. It owns us. But when we look to Christ, sin is dead to us. And we are dead to sin. 
Verse 10, the text says, for the death he, that is Jesus, died, he died to sin once for all. Now, see so the logic of this. And this is the mystery. This is the, the beauty and the glory of what's accomplished at the cross. And when you merely sentimentalize the, the death and resurrection of Jesus, you forget the meat of what was accomplished. It's glorious. So the logic here is that since Jesus died to sin, those that are united to him, that is by faith, you've believed, they too have died to sin. If Jesus died to sin, not his own sin, but if Jesus died to sin, those that are united to him by faith, they too have died to sin. And that death was once, never to be repeated. It covers all, meaning Jesus' death is sufficient for all. We don't need anything else. So as I said, that person can now say, sin's dead to me. Sin no longer has authority over me. That's what Paul's saying in verse 11. So you must also consider yourself, yourselves dead to sin. Now, practically speaking, does this mean we never sin again? Of course, experience tells us that's not true. And the Bible tells us that too. In John's first letter, he writes this. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. So we don't want to be deceiving ourselves to say, even though sin has no mastery over us, that, that we have no sin at all. That we're now completely spotless going forward. No, that's, that's self-deception. Since sin no longer owns us, yes, we can say you're dead to me and I'm dead to you, but we still live in these mortal bodies, don't we? They carry the effects of sin. Sin being that spiritual cancer, if you will, that will eventually kill our bodies. But we have the medicine. We have the spiritual chemo, if you will. We have that spiritual radiation that, that guarantees that sin no longer has dominion it will not have the final victory because you are united with christ so what do we do when we sin we must quickly remind ourselves that sin has no ultimate authority by humbling ourselves before god in confession so first john 8 first john 1 verse 8 if we have if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Then verse 9 is the relief. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know, the act of confession itself, I don't take it that, that in that moment that somehow there is something fresh done for us for cleansing. Well, the act of confession before God is, is in effect a reminder to ourselves before the Lord. Oh yes, the body of sin was abolished. The record annulled. The force of it gone. And so when we confess our sins before the Lord, we have the assurance of pardon. And this is not because we have made some kind of restitution before the Lord but really on the, the basis of the faithfulness and the justice of God. The justice of God because God has already taken full payment 
for your sin in the crucified body of his son, Jesus. So John is making an audacious claim here. If you confess, he's faithful and just to forgive. It sounds audacious. We don't, you mean we don't have to do something? We don't, we don't have to pay something? There's no appeasement? For the death he died, he died to sin. That is Jesus once for all. Once for all. It, it's a basic truth, but it is so often missed by so many who profess to be Christian. Just an example. Some of us have perhaps friends in the Roman Catholic tradition. And some of them, not all of them, but some of them have been believed the lie that their confession to a priest or their participation in the Mass and the various acts of penance expressed maybe in, in recited prayers and, and the rosary, etc. They've come to believe that these actually accomplish something of their justification. You think about that. All it does is cheapen what's been accomplished by God's grace alone, in Christ alone, and apprehended by faith in Christ alone. Now let me paraphrase Ephesians 2.8. It is by grace you have been saved and set free from the power and consequence of sin through faith. And all this is not your own doing. This is not penance. It is the gift of God. So know this. Know this, brothers and sisters, and, and swim around in this and ponder this and contemplate this. The relationship with sin has been severed because and only if you have been united with Christ in his death. Now, it must be said that none of these benefits, the, the breaking of the power of sin, the, the severing of the master-slave relationship, none of these benefits of Jesus' death would accrue to us if Jesus had remained in the grave, right? Praise God, he is alive right now. Well, now that we've had our Good Friday recap, let's get to Sunday, all right? You are alive to God. You are alive to God. Thinking about this, that we, would, that we would cling to life, that people would cling to life and seek to avoid death. To this we say, of course, of course we do that. It's the reason for healthy eating, for medicine. It's the reason for the police to protect us in our cities. And no, no sane person without some personal catastrophic event would debate in their own mind, I wonder, should I continue living today? No, of course not. We want to live. But why live? To what end or to what purpose? Now, I've contemplated this myself when I've, when I've had some uncertain medical diagnoses in the past, it's in the last several years, not recent. Whether my worry about it was justified or not, rational or otherwise, I, I've contemplated and I've worried about the possibility of my own death. And I've thought, well, wait a minute, I, I don't, I'm not ready. And the things that have come to mind, now I've long since given up on the idea that I might make a significant impact on the world, but, but there are things that matter. I, I do want to grow old with my wife. I want to see my children thrive and serve the Lord. I want to see my grandchildren grow. And there's nothing wrong with these desires. But are they ultimate? Are they ultimate? 
See, the reality is that physical death will come today, in a year, and almost guaranteed within a hundred years for everyone in the sound of my voice. Well, according to this Bible text that we read, the res resurrection of Jesus is a fact that changes everything for us. Now, it does not remove our physical death, but it does take away our spiritual deadness. Verse 9. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Jesus submitted himself to death once to conquer it. Jesus submitted himself to death once to conquer it for us. Now first, there's the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead. Now, now we get this. I mean, we could spend some time here. This is where the world, of course, scoffs at us. What, you're, you're telling me a man who was buried and put in a tomb, he walked out? Yes, and I know that even some so-called Christian theologians have suggested that the fact of the resurrection, not so important. It's just the kind of the ideas around it, you know, renewal and whatever. I'm not going to spend any time trying to defend the resurrection of Jesus apart from the sufficient witness of Scripture, and I will read it from 1 Corinthians 15, 3-7. The Apostle Paul writes there, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Here it is. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, that is Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom, at Paul's writing, he says, are still alive. Though, he says, some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Jesus is alive. Case closed. But since he is alive, Verse 10 says, the life he lives, he lives to God. The life Jesus lives, he lives to God. I don't know if you ever paused to think about that. The life Jesus lives, he lives to God. To God, meaning that his purpose in living is to the glory of God. But this shouldn't be surprising because the entirety of Jesus' mission on earth was primarily about the glory of God. The, uh, the gospel writer, John, he writes about him in his prologue, in his gospel. He says, we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son of the Father. John 1.14. So in light of that truth, all who are united to Christ by faith, verse 11 says, so you must also consider yourselves dead to sin. We talked about that. And alive. But alive how? Alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's the thinking that we need. Because of the resurrection of Jesus, we need to think of ourselves as alive to God in Christ. Now, considering ourselves being alive to God in Christ, it has two components. And there's a forever component. And there's a now component. Alive to God in Christ has two components, a forever component and a now component. First of all, you're alive to God forever forever 
I think you probably feel this, or maybe the, the older you get, you feel this. The more I live, the, long, the longer I live, I should say, the more I long for something more, something better. I hate that I'm still tempted to sin. I, I hate that I sometimes act selfishly. I hate that my words are sometimes careless. My thoughts are sometimes unholy. I hate that. I long for something better, and I'm confident in it. But think about those who have no eternal hope. If this life is all there is, then those who live this life that is all there is, they have to find a way to prolong it at all costs. They have to find a way to avoid suffering of any kind and to maximize every pleasure. Jesus speaks of a person like this. He calls them the wealthy fool. Jesus' parable, that wealthy fool said, I have everything I need. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But for those who are united with Christ, we have a far more hopeful, a far more eternal expectation, an expectation that is fulfilled beyond our own graves. Verse 5, we're back to the beginning here. We shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Now, many have tried to imagine life after physical death. It's been depicted, uh, sometimes attempted humor. People have imagined what it was like. It has been absurdly depicted as sitting on a cloud with a harp and maybe with cream cheese. I'm not sure. Maybe that was a TV commercial. And I think some have perhaps imagined a kind of a, a, a unrestricted fun exploration, discovery, power, all of those kinds of things. But let me say this. If your imagination about the afterlife, heaven, if your imagination about that excludes Jesus, then it's nothing much better than a pagan idea. If your vision of the afterlife excludes Jesus, it's nothing better than a pagan idea. Verse 8, Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. You see, eternal life is living with Christ, not apart from him. Understand this. There, we have nothing at all in ourselves to make us acceptable to God. Nothing in ourselves. But when we're united with Christ, we have everything. Everything. We have an infinite storehouse of that which to make us acceptable to God because it's not our own. <laughs> it belongs to Jesus. We have perfect righteousness in Christ. And because we are united with Christ, we can never, forever and ever and ever, be unacceptable to God. Get that. Because of the resurrection of Jesus and because you have been united to him by faith, you can never be unacceptable to God. You're always welcome in his presence. And because Jesus can never die again, neither will you. Because 
death has no dominion over Jesus, it will never again have dominion over you. Jesus assured Martha of this, and we read this together. When her brother Lazarus had died, Jesus said to her, John eleven twenty five, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. In Christ, we die, but we'll never die. We will live, but we first must physically die. Verse 5, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So like a, a seed planted in the ground, that, that seed is lifeless. And then at the right time, that is to say the time of Christ's return, we will be raised with a body like Christ's. And like Jesus, we will live eternally, bodily, to God. And that ultimately is to the glory of God. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, the whole resurrection passage. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. That's our bodies. What is raised is imperishable. Sown into the ground. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. We get that. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. We feel it. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. We know it. It is raised a spiritual body. And if there's a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Knowing that we will die to live again should change how we live now. Listen, as Christians, of all people, we should be the ones who are not paralyzed in fear of some evil event. We should, not be, we should be the ones who are not fearful of some disease or catastrophe. Leah reminded me of this. Some of you have seen this. C.S. Lewis was reflecting on, on what it was like to live under the threat of, of nuclear, uh, a catastrophic nuclear event. Uh, 1948, he wrote this. Think about this. How are we to live in an atomic age? I'm tempted to reply, why as you would have lived in the 16th century when plague visited London almost every year? Or as you would have lived in a Viking age when raiders from Scandinavia might land and cut your throat any night? Or indeed as you're already living in an age of cancer, an age of syphilis, an age of paralysis, an age of air raids, an age of railway accidents, an age of motor accidents? Believe me, he writes, dear sir or madam, you and all whom you love were already sentenced to death before the atomic bomb was invented and quite a high percentage of us were going to die in unpleasant ways. And he gets really pointed. It is perfectly ridiculous to go about whimpering and drawing long faces because the scientists have added one more chance of a painful and premature death to a world which already bristled with such chances in which death in itself was not a chance at all but a certainty. <laughs> Puts it in perspective. He says this. If we're all going to be destroyed by an atomic bomb, let that bomb, when it comes, find us doing sensible and human things. Praying, working, teaching, reading, listening to music, bathing the children, playing tennis, chatting with our friends over a pint and a game of darts, he writes. Not huddled together like frightened sheep and thinking about bombs. They may break our bodies. A microbe can do that, but they need not dominate our minds. 
Now, in this little section, it isn't explicitly Christian, but I know he's writing from a Christian perspective. You see, the world is terrified of the virus, and the pandemic has paralyzed so many people. Yes, 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 we have to obey the laws, and at least those laws that do not subvert God's laws. But, but where are there no, where are, there are no laws prohibiting our activities? Let us, let us carry on gathering and exalting Jesus so that he might draw more people to himself. We may die soon. We will die eventually and be raised again. Let us not live in fear. And if we're going to be destroyed by a virus, and I know it seems to be coming under control, let us be living to God. As Andy Dufresne said to Red, get busy living or get busy dying. Get busy living because you're alive to God. He owns it. He owns our days. He numbers our days. Well, you're alive to God forever and you're alive to God for now. Considering yourself alive to God in Christ is not just for beyond the grave. It is for now. Hopefully I've made that case already. But with the resurrection of Jesus now in the rearview mirror, we now live in anticipation of our own bodily resurrection to God. And that has power for us in the present. Verse 7, again, for the one who has died has been set free from sin. Set free. Set free. Now what? Jesus' resurrection changes now how we live each day. You see, the reality of eternal life is that in essence, it's about knowing God. It's relational. This is what Jesus prayed for us. John 17, 3. He said, and this is eternal life. He's praying about his disciples that they, he's praying to the Father, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is eternal life, knowing God and knowing Christ. Since now we know God, Instead of living for the weekend or living to avoid suffering and death, instead of living to indulge our appetites, we, we live each day trusting God, feeding from his word with the full confidence of his love that he proved at the cross of Christ. And we don't live independently anymore in these bodies. We don't. We live united with Christ in his death and resurrection and so now in light of that you can hear how beautifully the apostle paul describes his own experience galatians 2:20, often memorized and quoted i have been crucified with christ it is no longer i who live but christ who lives in me and the life i nil now live in the flesh i live by faith in the son of god who loved me and gave himself for me I'm crucified with Christ. I'm dead, but Christ lives in me. And yes, I live in this flesh, but I live by faith in the Son of God, confident in his love. So this now gives us the freedom to think differently. What occupies our minds ultimately informs what we do with our hands, does it not? What occupies our minds informs what we do with our hands. So we make it our aim to fill our minds with what is in the mind of Christ because he's been raised. A couple more scriptures to back this up. Colossians 3, one of my favorites. If then you have been raised with Christ. Now, it means that in a spiritual sense. You've been raised spiritually. You've been made alive. The Spirit has breathed new life into you because 
you have recognized what Christ has accomplished for you at the cross. If you have been raised with Christ, what do you do? Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. That's what we seek. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Why? For you have died and your life, now speaking union with Christ, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. How do we do this? How do we set our minds on things above? Well, of course, we do this by gathering with God's people to hear the word proclaimed. We, we are gathered together with God's people to be encouraged and to apply it. We do this by reading and studying God's word. We do this by, by daily praying for the grace of God so that we ultimately end up loving what God loves and hating what he hates as the women were studying in their Bible study this last Thursday Psalm 119, turn my eyes from looking at worthless things, the psalmist prays, and give me life in your ways. There's so many worthless things that can get our attention. Turn my eyes from looking at those things. The disunity and the political environment and the news that's constantly bad. There's a million worthless things that we could attend to. Turn us away from that so that we can set our mind on things above. And the resurrection of Jesus makes this possible. So, because Christ was dead and now alive, you and I should consider ourselves both dead and alive. We are dead to sin. The relationship, it's broken. It's dead to me. We're dead to it. Dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ. Let me ask you, does this describe you this morning? Let's live in the confidence of what has been done for us. Let's live in the confidence of our freedom from sin and death. Let's live in the confidence of our eternal hope. Let's live in the confidence of the power that we have each day because Jesus died and rose again. But listen, Listen to me, if you have not been united with Christ, none of this applies to you. It's not a general thing that just gets washed over everyone in the world irrespective of what they think or believe. So you may be at this very moment enslaved to sin. If you have not looked to Christ, your old self will not be crucified. You remain enslaved to sin and it will take you to its logical end, death. And you will have, if you're not united with Christ, if you have not put your faith in him, you will have no hope of eternal life. You will have no freedom from the power and consequence of sin and your life, even if it looks good, it's going to be a dead end. So you don't have to remain there. You do not have to. Simply trust Christ. Trust him today. Trust him now. I prayed at the beginning that God would raise the dead. And if you can hear my voice or see me, hear me. Trust Christ. Trust he is the son of God who assumed a human body. Trust that he lived the perfect life that we could not live to abolish the power of your sin and its eternal consequence, which is eternally being separated from God. He did this when he died at the cross. And he rose again, conquering death, conquering sin and all of its power. 
So look to him in faith and you will live. It is that simple. Look to him in faith and you will live. So, brothers and sisters, let us live this day and each day from now on in the power and the joy, the joy of Jesus' resurrection as we together wait for him to return to raise us to be with him forever. That's what we hold on to. Consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, who who could have conceived of such a wonderful way to bring us to you? You did. Before the foundations of the earth, you conceived it in your mind to have a people. But those people would rebel. Those people would put themselves on the path to destruction. But God, you would show the immensity of your mercy and grace that you in your own son would take the full penalty for our sin, that you, God, by your spirit would draw us to see him, to see him with the eyes of faith so that we could know that resurrection life that he experienced. Lord, uh, what can we say? Thank you. Thank you that Christ has been raised. Thank you that it changes everything for us. Thank you that it gives us an appetite for what is beautiful and holy. And that ultimately we see Jesus as our eternal treasure himself. So God, confirm these truths in us and, and fix in us an immovable hope and all that he has accomplished knowing that he will return again. That Christ may be glorified. We pray it in his name. Amen.